the Sunday afternoon series that we're now in, which began last Sunday, is titled, Unless. And each sermon will be based upon one verse which contains an imperative, an exhortation, a requirement, something that is very needful. Gospel truth is very specific. The language the Bible uses to describe the person and work of Christ, how he has accomplished our salvation, how a lost, dead, condemned sinner may be brought into a living reality of that salvation, how that experience changes them, and so on. All of these things are explained and exhorted in clear and precise language. There's no ambiguity. As you read through your Bible, there are no sentences which are left blank for you to fill in as it suits you. It's all there. The Bible doesn't allow us to start saying, well, what I like to think that means is when it comes to the fundamental truths of the gospel and of God's word, when it comes to the main things in the Bible, like the being and person of God, like the sinful nature of all men and women, like the nature of the atonement and redemption and propitiation, of redemption accomplished and applied as John Murray titled his little book, on these and other such topics, the Bible writers say what they mean and mean what they say. Such truths have only one interpretation, one explanation, one meaning, one application. Some, cynically, like to call it narrow-minded dogma. I prefer to call it enduring and eternal truth, which God has revealed in his word. And because of that, from time to time, we find these very clearly stated unless verses. Unless it is this, then you do not have what you think you have. Unless it is this, then you are not who you think you are. Unless it is this, then actually you are mistaken and you are in error. It's that emphatic. Thankfully, it's not that complicated. But it is specific. And it's very emphatic. And in this series, with the exception actually of last week's as we began in Psalm 127, all of the other verses that we're now considering, which contain this word, unless, every one of them comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as recorded, as it turns out, by three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, and John. 
If you're wondering whether we do need to be so precise with our words and with our explanations of what it means to be a Christian, maybe even here there are some who tend to think of us as being over-fussy about doctrine. Well, do bear in mind that all of these unless statements come from Christ. They're not from some stuffy, overzealous theologian who's just immersed in cold academic study. They come from the Saviour. Now today we consider these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important to make it clear that this verse isn't really to be used in an evangelistic setting. That's not how Jesus is using it. He's addressing his disciples. He's addressing those who already believe in him. The Sermon on the Mount is not about how to become a Christian. It's about what your life should look like. Now you are one. Used evangelistically, you'd have to be careful with this verse. Because if you were to tell an unbeliever that their righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and that if it doesn't, they won't enter the kingdom of God, well, you could lead them to the conclusion that they must simply try harder and be smarter than the Pharisees were in producing by themselves and for themselves the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. And of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about in verse 20. There has only ever been one man whose perfect life was sufficiently righteous before a holy God. So much so that God in heaven would be perfectly pleased with him and actually said so. And people heard him say it as Jesus was baptized. That man, of course, was also God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first point this afternoon actually reflects that truth about Christ as being the only one who has ever lived a righteous life. The righteousness which each of us need is, first of all, the righteousness of Christ. That's actually what you need. Now, God pulls no punches all through his word as he makes clear the bankruptcy of our souls in our sinfulness, that we have nothing to bring. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to merit ourselves before God. There is none who stands before him righteous, not a single one. Even the best of our deeds, even those things which they seem commendable amongst ourselves, but before God they're as filthy rags as he looks upon them from the vantage point of his holiness. I like to think I can play the violin. Compared to many of you, I can but then I go to the Philharmonic Hall 
And I have to come to the same conclusion as you do. That is what playing the violin should really sound like. All I'm doing is scratching the strings. I remember many years ago, many, many years ago, whilst visiting Kirby Sports Centre, the old one, it's been pulled down a few years ago now, after an hour or so of badminton with a friend, we went for a jog round the, the jogging track that was there. I was back then reasonably fit, and I thought I could probably do a 400 metre lap in a time that at least wasn't embarrassing. Until, until a group of about 20 lean, wiry young men from the local athletics club ran onto the track. And I suddenly realised that they were covering two laps for every one of mine. Now, whether you're playing the violin, whether you're running around a track, whether you're playing football, whether you're doing whatever you're doing, how good you suppose yourself to be rather depends upon who you're comparing yourself to, doesn't it? Against all of you, I'm probably not half bad at the violin. If I went to the Philharmonic, I wouldn't even get into the training orchestra for the, ch for the children and the teenagers. Depends who you're comparing yourself to. If we can have such vast discrepancies amongst ourselves, how big a gap do you suppose there is between you and the God who made you when it comes to holiness and righteousness and purity? we might like to think we do quite well. But who are, we compare, who are we comparing ourselves with? You can't even begin to call anyone good, said Jesus. Only God is good. The rest of you, don't even compare. It's not even worth trying. It's been said, hasn't it, that one person's belief that they are more righteous than another is about the same as someone standing on a stepladder boasting that they are closer to the moon than the person standing beside them on the ground. It's really not much of a boast, is it? In the gospel, by means of our union with Christ, which is both the active work of God in us and how God himself looks at us and views us, how God considers the Christian to be in his sight and in his presence, by means of that person being united to Christ, by means of that, God is able to look upon the sinner and instead see the righteousness of his very own son, 
It's wonderful. The filth of our sin has been cleansed. The guilt of our sin has been pardoned and forgiven. The punishment for our sin has been taken by another. And the righteousness of Christ is placed around your shoulders like a coronation robe as a monarch is receiving the crown. And you're justified before God. God the Father sees in his children a perfect righteousness. But it is not a righteousness of their own making. It is not a righteousness of their own doing. In the mercy and grace of God, the righteousness of Christ is the word we use is imputed to you so that the righteousness of Christ is seen by God as being your righteousness. It's an amazing thing that God does for us in the gospel. And so because God sees you clothed in the righteousness of his own son, you are accepted and you are drawn near. And you are given an entrance into his presence. Because the very righteousness of Christ is upon you. Uh, This is part of our justification. Now, we know only too well that our lives in reality don't match that. But that's how God looks upon us in his grace. And so the question needs to be put to you. Have you been to Jesus for this cleansing power and are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you know for certain that this is true of you, that you can claim through the mercies of God in the gospel the very righteousness of Christ for your own before God? And even now in the quietness of your own heart, you can call out to him in your sins for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness. He'll hear, he'll hear you. He'll answer you. Well, when we see Jesus saying that you must, your righteousness, it must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, in the first instance, this has to be your starting point. In Christ, accepted and brought near and clothed in righteousness divine, I see the path to life made clear. And all your merits, Lord, are mine. And that's it. Unless you have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, Jesus said. Well, the first question is this. Do you in Christ? And if you have, well, these verses in Matthew chapter 5 are for you. And let's just remind ourselves what Jesus says from verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy. Uh, another word perhaps that you could use there is dismantle, and take it apart. No, I've come to fulfill it. Assuredly, I say, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, there, there's some of the little tiniest marks that were made on the page in the Hebrew Uh, writing none of them will pass away from the law till it's all fulfilled whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so they'll be least in the kingdom but whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven 
I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Number one, you need the righteousness of Christ. Number two, the righteousness of obedience. And that's primarily verse 19. The righteousness of obedience. Now, it really is under, it's really important to understand, I'm not saying or suggesting with this second point, that somehow you can manage to make yourself sufficiently obedient that God will judge you as living righteously in his sight. Jesus is addressing his disciples. And in this section, he's telling them two things. He's telling them, first of all, the requirements of the Old Testament law still stand. And God expects all who believe in him to live in obedience to it. Now that said, a little explanation is needed. In the Old Testament, we have revealed to us spiritual truths and spiritual principles, and those truths and principles are expressed in ways which, for the most part, are no longer required today. The expression of them is no longer required today. The truths and the principles themselves still stand. What has been removed is those Old Testament expressions of them, which in the Hebrews, you remember, they're, they're called types and shadows. So if you think about things like all of Israel's worship in the tabernacle, all the various items of furniture that were in the tabernacle and later in the temple for washing and for prayer and for sacrifice, and all of the instructions that went with it as to how all of that was to be administered. The family line of the priests who would serve there. And all the different roles that they had. The need for sins to be atoned by the shedding of blood. Which in those days was through the sacrifice of animals. And many, many of them. All the different feasts that were celebrated throughout the year. Jesus is saying he is the fulfillment of it all. The spiritual truths and principles which were all embodied in that symbolism in the Old Testament, the truths and principles themselves still stand and still apply. But now they are all expressed and accomplished in and through Christ. And so we look to him for all of those things. We find in him all that was necessary, all that is necessary in the worship of God and in acceptance by God. So it's true then, if you look at it from one perspective, Old Testament versus New Testament, it can appear that everything has changed. But there's another perspective at which you, you look, and nothing has changed. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, 
typified as they are so often as the, in the scribes and the Pharisees, they could only see it one way. That everything is changing and Jesus is destroying everything. That he was just trying to change and abolish everything. But you see, they were completely blind in their sins to this other perspective that actually Jesus is fulfilling and completing it all. They couldn't see that. Jesus makes it clear that we are to read and accept every single word of the Old Testament as being the word of God, which it is. And in terms of things like God's moral law, as we find it summarized in the Ten Commandments, absolutely nothing has changed there. And Jesus upholds them. Jesus himself lived it and completed it fully, fulfilled it fully. Everything that is required of a man to live a righteous life in accordance with the Old Testament law, it's all embodied in the life of Christ. And Jesus says that anyone who plays fast and loose with even the smallest part of God's word, that's verse 19, anyone who plays fast and loose with even the smallest part of God's word is least in his kingdom. A few weeks ago, we were looking at left hand or right hand, goat or sheep, chaff or wheat, in the kingdom or not in the kingdom. Now, verse 19 is addressed to all who are in the kingdom because Jesus is talking to his disciples. And Jesus makes it plain that while all Christians are saved and all Christians will get to heaven, the various degrees of faithful obedience found amongst Christians in this life will be acknowledged in eternity by your Father. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. And he says that amongst those who will be there, there will be lesser. And there will be greater. That's what he says in verse 19. Now, if you come and ask me, well, precisely how will that all work in heaven? Exactly how will that show itself? I can't tell you because the Bible doesn't tell me. But it makes that distinction and it says this is true. That this distinction exists, there can be no doubt as you listen to the voice of your Savior. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so will be the least in the kingdom. So what's he talking about here? Well, says one, you see this little thing over here in God's word. I don't worry about that sort of thing. And neither should you. You're reading which book in the Old Testament? What on earth are you bothering with that for? What do you possibly hope to get from that? You don't want to be wasting your time with that old stuff. Least in my kingdom. 
says Jesus. And then here's another Christian. And they just view the whole of the Bible from cover to cover in awe and wonder as they read the word of God. Page after page after page. And they cherish it. And they share with others the rich blessings that are to be found everywhere throughout all the Bible. Guiding truths and principles which point you afresh to Christ. Guiding truths and principles which God will use to shape and direct and mold their life. So that they can live more and more as God would have them live. Wonderful promises to be claimed. Learning all kinds of glorious things about the being and nature of God. They love reading every part of God's word. Knowing that in every place God is speaking. And God is revealing himself. And God is teaching them what he requires of them. And they are quietly and prayerfully submitting themselves to God's word. And sharing it with others. Have you tasted this? How good it is. What does Jesus say of a Christian like that? They are the great ones in my kingdom. And here's the really encouraging thing. Anyone can be that. Anyone can. All you need is an open Bible, a humble and a contrite heart, a prayerful spirit, and God's spirit himself within you to lead you and guide you into his truth. Any Christian here who doesn't have those things? Nope. Not one. You've got all you need. Even now, sat, where, sat there with the Bible in your lap, as a Christian in Christ, you have everything you need to be great in the kingdom of God. But of course, in God's kingdom, it's the last who are the first. The problem with the Pharisees, you see, is that they had abandoned God's word, really, for their own man-made rules and regulations, which, at best, were a seriously and dangerously warped and twisted caricature of the word of God. Unless you have a righteousness greater than theirs, said Jesus. Well, you need the righteousness of Christ. Received as God's gracious gift by repentance and faith. 
And that then produces in the Christian a righteousness of obedience to the word of God. Because God produces within his children something essential which the Pharisees lacked. Righteousness of heart. Righteousness of heart. Now as this series continues, we will in future weeks, God willing, be looking at verses which actually talk about the necessary change which occurs in the life of a sinner as they are brought to repentance and salvation. So for example, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. The Proverbs are full of instruction concerning the heart. We're looking at the Proverbs, aren't we, on Wednesdays? Here's a little selection, just a little. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. As a man or woman thinks in their heart, that's who you are. As in water, face reflects face. So a man's heart reveals the man. And of course, Jesus kind of summarized all of that, didn't he, in Matthew 15, where he says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile you from the heart. The issue of the heart has always been the issue. Even the Old Testament, with all of its laws, it's all about the issue of the heart. More than 40 times in the book of Deuteronomy, God addresses Israel regarding the condition of the heart. Most famously summarized, I suppose, in verse 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. It was always about the heart. It's always been about the state of the heart before God. But we know, we know the sins in our heart leave us in a perilous state. And as David confesses his sins in Psalm 51, as he acknowledges that in his sins, he is not as God would have him be, and he knows it. 
he cries out to the Lord, doesn't he? That God would do what God alone can do. Lord, create in me a new heart. What's David saying? He's saying what we all need to say. Lord, this wretched, stinking, filthy heart, there is nothing I can do about it. But you can. Take it away. Give me a new one. Give me a clean one. Put a right spirit within me. That was David's prayer. And David discovered that God does what he promises to do in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He's going to completely transform you. He's going to turn you right side up. I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit within you. That's what David was praying for. I will take the heart of stone out of you and put a heart of flesh in you. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's interesting, isn't it? Do you notice that with heart renewed, the proof and result of that is that you have the righteousness of obedience to the word of God. That's the proof of a new heart. That's the proof that God has renewed your spirit within you. That you walk in obedience to God's word. A new and clean heart. With it comes a renewed mind and a transformed life. New loves, new affections, new desires. The love of righteousness, the love of godliness. A desire for righteousness and a desire for godly, godliness. A shame and a guilt over sin that you never knew before. A love and desire for the truth of God's word and to walk in obedience to it. And a welling up of a love and a desire for Christ that knows no end. Have you asked the Lord to do for you what only God can do? Like David did? Have you received the promises that God promises in Ezekiel? Unless you have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom, said Jesus. There's no other way to true righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. Once you've got that, you'll discover that you also have the righteousness of obedience because God has given you a righteous heart. For this, Christ came into the world to save sinners, that in him sinners may be restored to true righteousness. And then, and only then, would you be the salt and light in this world that God causes you to be? 
and to do so to the praise and glory of his name. The righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of obedience. Righteousness of heart. That Christian believer is you.